Moscow today, a couple hours ago. But um, beyond that, admittedly, there's so much, and there's a there's a word for it that I constantly forget. But when you're constantly looking at a data set uh, for any changes, things that were already occurring and would have occurred naturally suddenly take on significance that maybe they shouldn't have. So when we see fires and whatnot, especially industrial areas, yes, there's certainly more than there were. And a number of these can be attributed to partisan activities, enemy action. Uh, but there's also a large number of this is simply downstream effects of having a less than stable economy, having sanctions applied, having brain drain, having all these. And then there's some that were just going to happen anyway, because this is why OSHA is important, right? And so we, we have to take a sort of a deep breath before we look into these specific things, unless we see crucial infrastructure going up in flames in a very dynamic way. Uh, it, I always urge people to you know pump the brakes just a little bit because this could very well be somebody quite literally dropping a spanner in the works, whether they're doing so on purpose, whether it's an accident because you know everybody else fled the country and now they're the only person there and they're working 24-hour shifts, who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, it's still important. It's still interesting to see. It's still digging into Russia. But we, we do have to kind of look at the bigger picture as well here. Talking about the bigger picture, what would be the baseline you'd be using for to compare this? Do you have a, is there, well, I don't think even you keep a database like that, but do you know where, where one could find a database of the of industrial accidents in, in Russia, let's say, last year, so we could have a comparison? I wouldn't know where to start, to be quite honest with that. I'm sure there's some international aid organizations. I would start by looking at places like OSHA, and other uh, workplace safety, uh, whatever the European equivalent is, because I'm sure they use poor uh, ex poor circumstances as examples of what not to do. But if the data sets out there, I haven't seen it. The million, I haven't gone looking for it. Um, but it'd be great if somebody put that together and they could start charting it year over year. I'm going to be honest. I doubt the Russians probably even keep their own records, you know, given their poor industrial safety track record. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then update from... Uh, it looks like there may have been a Ukrainian counteroffensive attempt southwest of Lysychansk um, towards uh, Los Kutivka. Uh, this is along the front line at night. Uh, another TDF unit that, frankly, doesn't seem to have done their job um, and retreated without orders and ceded a large terrain. Uh, uh, another more capable Ukrainian unit was apparently sent in at night and the uh, Unfortunately, took some pretty heavy losses and wasn't able to take the town. So this is the um, – and we have to keep a full eyes. But when people talk about, well, what happened to all the TDF fighters? This is why they need training and experience because if I just give you a rifle and put you up at the front lines, when Russian tanks and helicopters start coming overhead, you're probably not going to hold your position as well as troops that have been battle-tested and trained for two to three months. So unfortunately – um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of after-action reports on exactly what went wrong here, because now once is, uh, you know, circumstance, twice is a little more concerning that this has happened two times in the same geographic region. I, I don't think it's because of, you know, some grand conspiracy, but just this is what they had there. So we'll have to keep an eye on it. I wouldn't be surprised if as a result of these TDF units, just, you know, to be perfectly blunt, shitting the bed here and costing uh, larger casualties for other more capable units that will see more mainline combat capable Ukrainian units pulled in to uh, relieve them because you know once you can say okay well this was a one-off thing but after two times I don't think the Ukrainian general command is going to be okay with this probably correct 
That What's, being said, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think it's, there's a Mark Twain quote. Um, Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, thrice is enemy action. Obviously, this isn't necessarily enemy action. It's just, you know, potential training issues and, you know, experience issues with the TDF, but the point still stands, you know. This does appear to be a, a problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah, um, so it's apparently from Marinodonia, uh to the west. The Russians kind of kicked west from the P-66 highway to see if they could start threatening and circling other areas of the front line. And the TDF units in Pedlizne, Loskutiva, just evaporated um, over the last day or two. And uh, this time, at least, they told people where they were going. They didn't just disappear like the ones closer to Papazna did several weeks ago that really just messed up the situation for Severodonetsk and started Rubishna? Uh Yeah, yeah, so the ones in Rubishna, uh, when they, but they had to pull out of Rubishna and started that. But whatever the case, it's uh, it's unfortunate to see this happen twice. Um, I... Uh, especially because there's other very capable, very hardworking Ukrainian units in the area that then have to plug this gap, and that's not a good position to be in, at least on a short-term notice. Yeah, but I think we we shouldn't lose from sight the fact that, uh, as a whole, the TDF units are are doing a bang-up job, and that I think that in any army, at some point, you've got units that just break. It has happened in, uh, I mean, you know, the US, the US infantry in uh, World War Two, uh, in, in the French army in World War One, their their units that just at some point just gave up and and, and moved on. Um, so, you know, I, I, we we should be very careful. First of all, never never throw brick at people because we've never we've never been under uh, heavy artillery fire, most of us at least. And uh, the second one is, um, yeah, it happened. It happens everywhere, uh, and while it's for sure something that the, the Ukrainian command should be concerned about and, and look into, it's also, I would say, part of the job. There, are, if you have enough units on a front line long enough, some units are just going to lose heart at some point and, and uh, get out of uh, get out of dodge at some point. Um, Doctor Paul, do you want to to comment on this? Yeah, thanks, Ben. <laughs> And you kind of answered partially some of it. Um, language, I'm sorry, I missed your, your update. I literally came in at the very end, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I've noticed uh, the TDF have like kind of a, mm, dissipated to a degree in certain areas. I wanted to hear if you had a, a reason or if you had any rationale of why that's occurring other than the massive shelling, right? I mean, beyond just erosion of mm, morale, will to fight or otherwise. You know, like Ben just notably said, you know, I totally understand it. It's not about that. Just, I want to understand why that's happening. It feels like a almost a breakdown a little bit of the command and control structure and loss of, of communication and coordination across the, the front, essentially across the east. But I'm, it could be wrong. I'm just guessing. But I'm, I want to know if you have any better insight. I'm sorry. I'm jumping in also to compliment when we're saying units, what are we talking about? TDF, Territorial Defense Forces. Yeah, but not the whole of the TDF has moved on, right? It's, it, is it a, a platoon or are we, to, are we talking about uh, a regiment? I'm asking about the, the areas that have kind of collapsed in certain parts of, you know, these, these various towns that have been captured or potentially encircled that have withdrawn. I just want to know 
what's what's been that mechanism what's been the the the, the root cause other than over, is it just overwhelming force and it's a retreat or are they dissipating and abandoning it's uh there's at least the one that happened before Nipopazna. It's, I mean, yes, you know, I'm not going to sit here on a comfy couch and, you know, lecture, you know, or I would do this in that situation because I'd probably just die, right? And, and if I didn't, I'd probably be terrified and I might run too. So let's, you know, dispense with our, you know, pseudo bravery. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm you know, trying to come off here as an armchair general. The TDF units are the third line Ukrainian defense forces. Um, you have the Ukrainian military, conventional. You have the National Guard, um, also conventional, but they're going to get, you know, slightly less training, slightly less equipment, be slightly less capable in some instances. And then you have the TDF, a number of which uh, do have combat experience in the Donbass. They volunteered. Um, a number of others don't. And the issue, and this is what we've seen with Russia and the Russian, you know, the EPRLPR conscripts, is that you can't just give someone a rifle and expect them to do well with, you know, two weeks of training, right? Uh, unfortunately, in the East, where the battle's been ongoing, they haven't had the luxury of being able to rotate these units out for advanced training. So certainly they've learned a lot. I mean, those that are alive now have gone through 120 days of pitched or, you know, warfare. They, they know what they're doing. However, they also get some of the least amount of supplies um, because let's, you know, frankly, if you've got, you know, three apples and you've got five units or whatever, you're going to send them to the people who can do the most with them first, and then you'll try and ration everything else out. What the TDF unit claimed that was near Papazna, and until we know exactly what happened in the last couple hours with this other TDF unit, I'll, I'll try and use this one data point that we do have. The TDF force claims they weren't getting effective communication, they weren't getting effective supplies, they're starving or you know running out of food, and that they just didn't have the heavy weapons they needed to deal with Russian uh, armor and specifically aircraft and as a result that unit retreated without notifying their command which is even worse because saying hey we're pulling back we're retreating we can't do it anymore without orders yes that's bad but not telling somebody you're doing that and so then they figure it out when now russians go through the hole that you left that's even worse i have no idea whether that happened this time or not from what i understand it didn't these tdf units just said oh we can't do this and they pulled out again but it's this is why you can't give somebody, you know, two weeks of training and try and get them, you know, up to fighting position. And that's why we've seen with a lot of the other TDF units, they haven't been just thrown at the front line. They've been sent, to, especially in the Western regions, to increase training, to improve their combat cohesion and effectiveness. So things like this don't happen. But, you know, the front lines along the JFO area, that luxury hasn't really been afforded to these units. So there is a – I'm going to choose my words carefully – there is an understandable reason why undersupplied, undertrained troops in the face of a large-scale Russian offensive and with, you know, third-rate equipment are going to pull back without orders. Does that make what they're doing right? No. Does it cause considerable downstream consequences for the more capable units? Yes. Is it detrimental overall to the war? Very much yes, but it's not. It is something that, from a perspective, you can reason out with. Um, hopefully, though, be, and it's just the fact that they're doing it as quickly as they are is upsetting uh, because there are reserves in force. And if they say, hey, we're not in a good position, send us something, we'll you know, send us up more troops, and then you can go, oh, wow, this is a bad spot, let's plug the gap before it becomes a hole, then you fix the problem. But if you just go, we can't do the same more, we're out, 
then it, the problem starts to snowball. And uh, then we end up with what we have now. Um, let me let me ask you the question again. When you say units, what are you talking about? I think we're talking in uh, some cases the 115th TDF. Um, that was, let's say that was a brigade. No, maybe that was a regiment. I think that was a regiment. Um, so, but, but as far as specifically the ones that are in these towns, I, I don't know. Uh, would, you know, a couple hundred guys maybe. Plus, I, I, this has all happened very recently. Like, the knife battle only concluded a couple hours ago. So I, I don't have any more information than that. We were talking about a couple hundred guys uh, that at most, I would say, we know we're not talking about thousands here, that uh, because they're in less than ideal circumstances, um, you know, the situation can devolve very rapidly. And do you think it's possible for the Russians to go like, okay, this part of the line is held by a TDF unit. Let's pummel it because, well, all in all, they're more likely to break. It's possible. Um, it's just, in, I haven't seen specific evidence that's going on because we're not seeing, until the breakthroughs happen, we haven't really seen mass amounts of Russian activity directed towards a single spot on the line. Uh, they, they tend to be somewhat dispersed. Once they start to realize that they're making a breakthrough, yes, then they throw a bunch of troops into it. But in this case specifically, I mean, something else broke down because, you know, Russian troops pushed through like three towns in an afternoon that really should have had people there. And if there were people there, they wouldn't have been able to do that. So this wasn't a matter of, oh, you know, these TDF units got wiped out by, a, you know, a huge wave of Russian armor and, you know, infantry and there was just nothing they could do. Like something else happened because the Russians walked through three towns in an afternoon. Okay. Um, uh, ben, I, I just got to send a letter to that I got to hop off for the night and uh, get some shut eye. Okay. Well, if you if you have to. Thanks a lot, John. You you are you, you are very very good, and um, you're actually you're one of those who is as good a speaker as the a host. So um, it's always fun to to have you around. Uh, language. I'm sorry, I spoke over you. Did you, did you want to say something? No, I just I can I do have to head out in like the next ten minutes at max. If there's any other questions, I can take them real quick. Um, and as always, I'll I've thrown the audio and text up. It's on your know, profile. Let me know if there's anything I can correct. If there's anything I did wrong, um, I did do the severity on yet section before I saw the update confirming the withdrawal of troops. I didn't really want to speculate on you know just individual rumors from units there. So that one isn't as quite up to date. But uh, beyond that, always happy to learn. And my DMs are always open. Well, for tomorrow, if you could make an effort to be better news, that would be appreciated. I'll try. Don't hit me anymore. I promise I'll be better. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there's this uh, fellow called Bruno Massesh. He's a very smart cookie. He's a Portuguese politician who uh, has been um, alerting the world of the Russian menace uh, for well, well over 10 years. Uh, and our friend Luis would love him to come and say hello to the Walter Report. So he sent him a, a message. Uh, and this message is now pinned in the nest. If you could uh, like and retweet that message, that would be highly appreciated. Um, and uh, and uh, do, do, do your Twitter thing. Uh, language, are you still here? Yes, sir. Okay. There is... Um, 
a question from a famous uh, cigar smoking uh, person in the um, in the in the space uh, on the subject of training. I'm, re I'm discovering it as uh, as I speak as I read it. On the subject of training, how much of a game changer do you think the UK offer of a major training program is to Ukraine? So, um, if I recall um, uh, last week or earlier this week. The, um, the UK proposed to train 10,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers a month uh, for for the duration of the war. Do you think that could be that could be a, a game changer, and maybe that could be something that helped the the TDF in particular? Yeah, I mean, training matters. Um, you know, we like to talk about equipment, and yes, while some of these long range heavy equipment have outsized effects on the battlefield. Ultimately, the guy pulling the trigger or, you know, shooting the missile is going to be the uh, most, you know, variable aspect of that system. So uh, 10,000 more TDF fighters or 10,000 more National Guard fighters who can now operate at a higher level of NATO standards. That's huge because in summary, I know there's a number of units that have been trained to NATO standards in the Ukrainian military. Let's not, you know, diminish that fact. One in particular. Um, of the National Guard, one of the first uh, units that was trained to NATO standards, has been doing an incredible job in all, essentially all the urban combat you've heard about all war, um, from Hostomo to Severodonetsk to Rubizhna to Papazna to other areas in between. And they do well because they know how to do well. And so when the more people you can train to that level and that standard, the better the whole situation gets. So I think it's huge. Um, frankly, you know, I We know that there's training operations going on inside and outside of Ukraine by uh, different countries. Um, outside of Ukraine, they're being trained by other countries outside of Ukraine, not inside. But it's it's a beneficial thing. It, we can't really put a quantifiable number on, oh, well, now the Ukraine troops will have a plus 30% to attack or anything like that, right? But it's it does make a difference because the man or woman holding the gun is the biggest variable factor as opposed to the gun itself. Right. Otherwise, it would just be a matter of whoever has more troops win. Yeah, and as we see at the moment, that's that's not always sufficient to have more troops. Thanks a lot for the answer. I'm sure it will be appreciated uh, on the wrong side of the channel. Uh, so, Lucien, did you have a question for language, or do do would you like to present something? If it's a question, I, you I can go ahead. I wanted to make a general. Uh, uh, comment about Hostomel and that seems to be the battle that saved Ukraine. Okay, uh, yeah. So, Lucien, 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 I'm so, so sorry. Can you hold it? Uh, um, language is, is going to turn into a grizzly bear in a couple of seconds. Okay. Uh, I, I think Dr. Paul may have a question for him and then we'll come back to Hostomel. Yeah, thanks. And, and language, not to keep you up any later. Uh, real quick question. I'm curious uh, on this territorial defense you know, topic, Do you, you know, this is just my observation, you know, the Ukrainian special operations forces have really been focused on direct action missions and as, as attractive and alluring and propaganda victories as all those missions that they are doing are, are doing or are, are accomplishing. I'm kind of wondering if they should transition back into kind of like at least with the United States Special Forces, Army Special Forces, that foreign internal defense type of mission of working with territorial defense forces would have prevented collapse of certain front lines and, and things like that. Is, is that something that the Ukrainian high command should 
be considering at this point in time, or am I just totally incorrect in misreading just based on the Twitter sphere of the videos that we've been seeing over the Ukrainian special forces? So we have been, there's been a lot of that in the background. It's not as sexy as you say to watch a bunch of, you know, special forces or more capable, more battle hardened troops training uh, more uh, fresh troops, but it has been happening. Uh, we've actually had a few people in this space whose names you might recognize that have uh, helped out with some of those groups. Um, and at least one TDF fighter that was in this space that uh, went to some of those trainings. So it's, frankly, I mean, it's something that's been worked on. And then there's other opportunities to train these forces. Um, I, without going too much into it, other countries can do things to help as well. I'm just going to kind of leave that on the side. But you're right. I mean, it's the TDF being mobilized and being trained is something that is actively keeping the Russian command up at night, or at least Igor Gurkin. And, you know, I wish him many nights of fitful, restless slumber, right? Uh, this is, you know, the guy who was responsible for at least carrying out some of the initial invasion into the Donbass and Crimea in 2014. And the man's been screaming about it for a month and a half now, saying that when the Ukrainians get their forces mobilized and trained, we're fucked and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And that's a quote in some cases. So if and when these troops are ready to go, and let's say it happens to align with the MLRS and other heavy weaponry being ready to go, and I'm going to be very conservative here and say sometime by the end of July, then now this, quote, you know, 700,000 strong man army becomes an army and not just a bunch of guys who can man checkpoints on a good day. And at that point, the situation changes dramatically because now Russia is operating from a negative. Um, and we know these training missions are going on. They take time. There's a reason why if you join the military, even if you just want to be a cook in the Navy, God bless the cooks, right? But, you know, low rate. It's not – they don't just throw you in after two weeks, right? And it's not because the military and the government really likes paying for your room and board and clothes. It's because it takes you months and months and months to learn how to not get yourself killed and how not to break under fire. And then also hopefully with increased numbers of units, they can have their own logistical supply lines. The TDF have had considerable issues, at least in this Papazna area, with getting accurate supplies and um, getting the stuff they need. So hopefully by virtue of having more of those, it will also help with morale because if all you've got is a bunch of old RPGs and a Russian reconnaissance group shows up with a, tanks and helicopters, you're not going to be in a good position versus if you have your own battalion now, you're a little more organized, you've been training with these guys for three months, then you'll have more of a chance to push back that attack. Yeah, thanks, Language. Really appreciate it. And I totally agree. I mean, my own assessment is while we are focused on Severodonetsk and the Donbass, personally, that's these are not decisive factors in the overall war for Ukraine. In my view, it all, um, like you said, the time it takes to train and, and arm, equip, etc. Ukraine just needs to buy time. They have the will to attrit the Russians into submission over time, and they are getting stronger, unlike the Russians who are continuously getting weaker, with with the inability to replenish themselves and restock themselves with inferior uh, armaments. So, um, in my view, um, three to six months from now, things are going to look very different. I'm not, unlike a lot of folks on here, I'm not super 
hypercritically focused on the server Donetsk and what the outcome of it. I personally don't think it, it matters all that much strategically in the overall scheme of the war. It's a battle. It's an important battle. Uh, but you can certainly win a battle and lose the war or lose the battle and win the war. And that's that's my assessment at this time. Absolutely. And so with that, um, I'll keep my DMs open as always, but I do got to run. Thank you guys so much um, for you know, even giving me a chance to speak. And if there's any questions, uh, shoot them in DM and anything I can do to improve uh, information is always there. And if you want to do some homework, get me the names of the units east and northeast of Kharkiv, and I'll, you know, buy you a beer at some point in the very, very distant future. Bye. Uh, thanks a lot, language learner. Uh, we do expect you back tomorrow with much better news. Uh, that was that was a great uh, update. Uh, and now we're going to Gastamo uh, with Lucien. Lulu, are you here? Mr. Lucien, going yeah, on. Uh, yeah, guys, I didn't expect to speak, but um, I did want to circle into uh, this narrative about uh, the 2014 veterans of the war in Ukraine and who uh, could contribute. And um, there are many different sectors and uh, elements and including Nadia Savchenko, I don't want to sound like a broken wheel, but um, uh, we have prisoners of war and uh, she could be a valuable asset to uh, uh, unlock that uh, mechanism of communication. And she's gone dark. And I, I understand she was probably told by the Ministry of Defense that if she's going to uh, be active, then she had to go dark. And um, because I'm sorry, I know I'm sorry. Her, Lucia, who, who are you talking about? Oh, well, she was like the Joan of Arc of Ukraine, and she was a prisoner of war um, in early 2014. And um, I met her before she was taken captive, and then she was put on trial in Russia uh, for allegedly calling on strikes on Russian journalists. And then she was uh, personally forgiven by Vladimir Putin. And then uh, exchanged in a prisoner swap, flown back to Ukraine on the presidential plane. And then she was a member of parliament, member of the parliament of uh, Europe or something. And during the time she actually was a prisoner of war, and then she went back into the DPR uh, to work to uh, exchange prisoners of war of, of Ukraine from these prisons uh, in DPR, which were cap, uh, captured uh, and then made into prisons for Ukrainian prisoners of war, things like that. But it's complicated. So I don't hear from her. And I don't see her. I know people who know her sister. And um, I don't know what her story is right now. But, um, you know, the like President Poroshenko and he's still like the president, president, alternate president. And he I know guys who are in, in, involved in Poroshenko's security detail and um there are other presidents in waiting and things like that, but um, the power structure in Ukraine is is still not locked into uh, Zelensky. 
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, we're, um, we're, we're, ch- we're skipping subject way too fast. Uh, I, I don't have your brain. I cannot, I cannot follow. Um, so you're telling us that there's this lady uh, and she's gone dark and she's trying to do something, right? I, I, yeah, I'm telling okay. you there, there's a person, uh, Nadia Savchenko, Guardian News, uh, hero of Ukraine, and she has totally gone dark. And I do know her personally. Okay. Are you, are you worried for her or anything? No, I just don't okay. know what's going on. Um, okay, okay. So if, if someone knows, uh, we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to bring you some news. Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you're okay, uh, Domin has wants to intervene, and then maybe we'll come back to you for, for the second part of your intervention, right? Yeah, yeah, Fantastic. no, thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, guys, yeah. Um, Lucien, you make no sense whatsoever. What the hell would it mean that somebody is an alternate president? There is no such a thing as an alternate president. Well, there's presidents in waiting, and then there's, uh, you know, Poroshenko is kind of like the other guy. No, there's no such thing as a president in waiting. He's just the guy who lost the last time. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, uh, now that this is uh, made clear, uh, there's a, a troll attack at the moment. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to be a little bit busy. Uh, that being said, these uh, one specific trolls are uh, sending pictures of naked ladies, which, you know, at least there's this for that. Uh, Slava, good morning. Are you okay? Uh, thank you. I'm okay. And I just heard about this uh, Nadia Savchenko. And I would like to add some clarification. So... We all know this. We all know the story that she was a prisoner in the um, Russia. She was like a, a, a Jean of Dark. Uh, yes, uh, a lot of the politician was uh, behind her in Ukraine to release her. But what happened next? It was really strange because uh, when she come to Ukraine, she was accepted as a hero, she was awarded a hero award, but later she started to appear on the uh, Medvedchuk TV channels, who was really pro-Russian, so a lot of the Ukrainians just understood that she was uh, maybe a Russian asset, and she was maybe turned in, the, in time, so when she was uh, served she, when she was behind the bars in the washer. So it's my just just my opinion. I do not uh, want to throw some rocks uh, so but for Ukrainians, uh, it's a clear picture. Nadia Savchenko is not uh, Ukrainian in the means that she holds the Ukrainian uh, patriotism. She was a lot of the, made a lot of the, a lot of the uh, saying that uh, was correlated with the Russian propaganda. So she is, for Ukrainians, is not good. Uh, and uh, as she gone dark, maybe uh, means something. So thank you. Thanks, Lava. Uh, and thank you all the more because I'm, um, I have to say, whenever it comes to internal domestic uh, Ukrainian stuff, I am so at a loss that uh, some people could be saying absolute nonsense and I would not be catching it. I'm just saying it's nothing against you. I'm just talking in general. Uh, yes. Na- yes. 
Yes, yes, because it was, sorry, uh, it was uh, suspicious because uh, it was uh, maybe one of the tricks that Russian, Russia did on the Ukraine. Because you know that Russia done, done a lot of the informational push on the Ukraine and this way to manipulate manipulate uh, Ukrainian government and other pop in Ukrainian pop population, meaning uh, Ukrainian citizen. And uh, you, Nadia Savchenko, she was very, uh, very popular in this time when she come back to Ukraine. But then it then completely uh, ruined this own reputation. This way, when she trying to blow the Verkhovna Rada, so it was really strange. So it's not. Uh, kept with the story that she was so patriotic. She made some different uh, LNR, DNR, some connection. And so it looks a bit shady. So I don't want to blame someone, but for Ukrainians, it looks uh, strange. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. So I, I guess it's not, a, it's not a story we're going to sort today, uh, but it's good that you're giving us the, the basics. Uh, Charlie, the Ukraini, do you want to, to join yeah. us? Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I wanted to respond to what uh, the Savchenko conversation, and I think Slavo put it really well. And look, you're not, I think most Ukrainians are lost when it comes to domestic politics. It's very, very complicated here, and it's very hard to wrap your mind around. But yeah, I think uh, it, she, she was either compromised in some way or a, a victim of m mental illness. And I mean, I, I had conversations about it when she started uh, appearing on these TV channels and acting very strangely, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of the times people uh, who serve make excellent politicians uh, and go on to serve in political roles. And a lot of the times uh, a warrior is not a philosopher. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know if she's gone dark or or not, you know, but uh, I, I, I think it's an interesting case. And, and the disinformation angle is an interesting thing to think about. I, I remember last night uh, there was a discussion about CIA being blamed for creating the AIDS epidemic and things. And I think we should always keep in mind that there are millions of Russian sources working on muddying any possible water that they can in the most r ridiculous sort of way. So... Yeah, you get informational chaos. Yeah, and that's when uh, Walter and his reports uh, shows up to, well, through, uh, clean through the chaos. Oh, of course, I wouldn't say that I'm helping in any way. I'm just uh, here waiting for smarter people to arrive. Uh, that being said, um, I've been... So, sorry, uh, Charlie, can I... Uh, I'm going through your, your profile. You're currently in Ukraine, and I am in Lviv. Doc. Yes, <laughs> I'm in Viniki. Uh, a little. You don't, have to, you don't have to translate that to me. I, I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, uh, in between languages, I'm trying to speak Ukrainian mostly here. Okay, that's enough. And you, you're, you're there for art, or you're there for uh, research, history research? Well, I came here uh, in the beginning of february to move here permanently i did a smart dissertation. boy smart right. 
I, I wrote a dissertation on the repression of Yiddish writers uh, at the end of the Stalin period. And I came here uh, to, to make a, a sort of career here and to be closer to archives and different friends. Charlie, I think we lost you. Uh, if you can hear us, uh, maybe maybe drop down and cycle back up because uh, we were not hearing a word you're saying. Nope, still. Can, can someone hear him? Luca, Senti qualcosa? No, no, no. He's, he's, he's out. He's out. You might as well drop him already, DM'd him to reconnect. Yeah, he's out. Uh, Slava, can I ask you a question about the way history is taught? Uh, I guess not to you because you, you probably did not go through the Ukrainian system, but uh, through people of a younger generation. Do you know how history is taught in uh, in Ukraine? And if there's, um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the the whole thing with the the step. How do, is the, the the people from the step seen as a perfectly uh, uh, a full part of Ukrainian history, the Sarmats and uh, and people like that, or are they uh, the per perceived as the perennial enemy uh, that the real Ukrainians had to fight? Oh, really uh, deep question. Uh, I've uh, missed a bit uh, Sarmat and who's... Uh... Uh, the Sarmats, the Mongols, whomever, per, you know, guys on horses. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, uh, Ukraine... Uh history of the history of the ukraine is uh, uh teached in the in the detail details but how detailed it i don't really know but it goes far 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 history of the ukraine and i was not good in the history of the ukraine i'm sorry but uh, it's uh, teaching a lot so it teaches about uh, uh, enemies all these times and teaches how uh, Ukrainian uh, Rus uh, established uh, all the heroes, all the uh, Getmans, all the great uh, Ukrainians um, patriots. So it goes deep. It's not just a brief history that we have. It goes from the how it started and how if uh, all the fights because uh, Ukrainians just fight whole, whole life. It's now no, there is no peace time. It's just brief parts of peaceful, and it's all to, to teach the, uh, in the schools. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Slav. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to you for, for the question. Meanwhile, um, um, Charlie, we had lost you at, um, when did we lose you? You were explaining us that you were back, you, you lived in leave to be close to, the, to some people uh, important to you as well as to the archives. Uh, I don't understand right, I'm, why you would I, I can't, why you would put the archives seconds because we all know that archives are in Australia historians true love. Uh, but uh, yes, please continue. I'm sorry, I, I kept talking. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I came. I came. I wrote a dissertation about uh, repressed Yiddish writers uh, in the Stalin period. I moved back at the beginning of February, I, I knew there'd be a war, um, but there's a, a lot of cognitive, cognitive dissonance to that, right? Everyone knew there would be a war in a sense, and everyone also was sort of hoping it wouldn't happen or wouldn't develop. So I moved to Lviv at the beginning of things and started volunteering, gathering money for medical kits and thermal visors and things. And then we started a 501c3 uh, uh, a friend that I studied with in graduate school who's in Germany uh, to 
gather funds to support renovation and art therapy efforts. Um, artists here are, are, you know, community servants, much as they are a lot in a lot of the places in the world. And a lot of kindergartens get painted uh, on artists' own money. And we figured we could start a stipend program eventually and uh, fund some art careers and get a lot of stained glass and kindergartens and things renovated down the road when uh, when the the war is is won. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing here is working on getting that organization so, off the ground. So your research, uh, you're, you're not doing research anymore. At the moment, uh, at the moment, no. <laughs> the archives uh, are are far away uh, uh, from my sort of priorities. But I mean, I have a, a, an incredible amount of research that I've collected uh, in the past eight years that I've been working uh, in different archives, uh, and so I, uh, it's something I can turn back to, and I plan to. Uh, when things change. <laughs> Your dissertation is available? My dissertation is on ProQuest. Uh, it is, I believe... So I can read it the first 24 pages. Thank you. <laughs> Very helpful. Yeah. I'm going to get you... Thank you, thank you, your mother and your, and your supervisors. That's not very helpful. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, my dissertation's out, out there. Uh, if anyone's... Uh, seriously interested in the repression of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee and uh, the Ukrainian cadre of Yiddish writers. Uh, I'm always available to talk about that, uh, as well as many other things. Fantastic. Okay, uh, I think I'm gonna um, I'm gonna ask you to send me uh, some goodies. Um, that and do, but um. I'm sorry, Lucien, I, I see your hand raised, but I uh, know that I have my teeth in Shelley. I'm not letting him go. Um, do you see any um, continuity between uh, the repression uh, against the, the writers under, under, during Soviet times and with what we're seeing at the moment? Or is the situation completely different? I, I, I think the, I mean, you can, we talk about history a lot when we're talking about genocide in Ukraine. And, you know, a lot of people will bring it back to, you know, Peter I or Ivan Kalita, the great-grandfather of uh, Ivan IV, Ivan, Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, right? Um, and I think you also make an argument that the history of, of contemporary Russian, Russian genocide starts with Stalin. Uh, I see cultural erasure as a main theme, the attempt to destroy and undermine and ignore uh, a viable culture. Uh, at the time Yiddish was repressed, it was already uh, missing its reader. Uh, as far as like a viable language to be spoken where you could take an algebra course, it was gone already, right? Students weren't studying arithmetic in Yiddish. Uh, it was sort of one of the sort of like maniacal uh, controlling efforts of a, a doddering Stalin uh, and born of paranoia. And in that sense, like we're dealing with a maniacal doddering Putin. Uh, but I think that the, the, the threat is much more profound. Stalin's erasure of Yiddish, this sort of was a genocide following upon a genocide, uh, a civilization 
uh, Yiddish civilization that spanned across Europe. Charlie, 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 uh, uh, yeah. Charlie I'm sorry. Are we talking sorry. about the 30s or the or the 50s? I'm talking, talking about, about the 30s yeah, after the, after World War II. So 1946 to 1950. Okay, okay, thank you. Right, like this was a, a civilization that had been destroyed, right? and I mean civilization in the sense that. Uh, an apparatus in which you could write poetry or study math or educate your children or live it, right? And Ukrainian civilization in that sense, the the language, the ethos, everything is, is, is certainly has a lot of prospects. It's not going anywhere. You know, there's more than 40 million Ukrainian speakers and that number is going to rise. Uh, so... There's parallels in the idea of cultural erasure, uh, in the way that uh, Russians will erase the identity of any victims of violence uh, and sort of try and monopolize the idea of inhumanity and humanity. Uh, but in the sense that that Ukraine will survive, right? This isn't the same kind of story, right? Um, but yeah, there's tons of parallels. Uh, and I think the misinformation angle like th- these are the continuities in Russian history, right? In in contemporary Russian history, or the continuity of disinformation and its link to like a sort of postmodern idea of relativism and to the erasure of people's identity. Uh, but it that's it's kind of heady and philosophical, right? It's not okay, okay, direct. okay. So so I've got something else heady and philosophical for you. Actually, the question extends to Charlie, Slava, and even Lucia, if you want to contribute. Um, how come the, um, well, Ukraine managed to break away from from the shackles of history and the shackle of of culture, which, uh, as we know, does not flow. Not everything is downstream from culture. Um, but uh, so how come Ukraine managed to, to break away from, from predestination and, and Russia didn't? Or inversely, um, how come this lingered in, in Russia and uh, Ukraine uh, veered towards a more open and democratic system? I think it's the case of, of like, it, I, I, I don't want to necessarily, I'm going to use a crude sort of metaphor because I think it makes sense. Like an abusive family. Think about a, a family where there's a certain kind of like, really violent abuse going on and there's a favorite child uh and there's a child who is receiving all of the abuse and none of the praise let's say right and and we can imagine these kind of families it's not something that you have to look far and wide to find you know a plethora of examples of like an abusive family where there's a favorite uh the the favorite child of the soviet union russia is the the one who the, the the Russian consciousness is about loss. It's about revanchism. It's about uh, the, the the happy the unhappy death of an empire. Whereas Ukrainians were colonized, and uh, the the the, con- the self consciousness of Ukraine is is has a lot to do with repression and colonization. So whereas I think Russians internalize that abusive identity and perpetrate it and go on to become perpetrators because perpetrators start as victims, right? And we also, we, we understand that people watching the zombie box in Russia are victims in a sense of, uh, especially children, right? Like they, they, they are not willing participants in a cultural narrative that ends up making them into monsters. And 
sometimes it's easier to make a moral choice if you have an alternative. So, you know, I, I often say Ukraine is not corrupt. It is corrupted. It's a very corrupted country and a very corrupted system bureaucratically. There's a lot of institutionalized sort of privilege and abuse that goes on. But there's an alternative, right? Like uh, the alternative is the, the recognition of that and like the discussion of that and the struggle against it. In Russia, that alternative has been slowly uh, depleted and eroded. And the people who uh, have the ability to, to make good on it, people like Navalny, uh, it's not just a matter of them being in prison. It's, they, they, they're also Russian nationals. And they, they fit into the Eurasianist narrative and they support it in, in a way. Like if you listen to some of the comments of these people who are supposedly the, the democratic alternative, uh, they have attitudes toward Ukraine and uh, the former Soviet Union that uh, in a lot of ways parallel. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not Duganism, but they, they have parallels to the Eurasian idea. So to me, it's, it's about the chosen child and about the lack of alternatives and about just the sort of cancer of the imperial identity, making it much easier to choose to be an abuser than to move beyond it. Well, thanks a lot. Um, Lucia, would you hate me if I uh, pass on the mic to Adrian because he has a question, I think, to Charlie? Or maybe yeah, I, I really want to support okay. uh, the narrative of, sorry, uh, um, a family friend of mine, uh, Rob Nilsson, uh, made a movie about the killing of uh, Leon Trotsky. It's called Something Happened Here. And it's a story about uh, about genocide in Ukraine and the village that Leon Trotsky inhabited in southern Ukraine. And um, it's an interesting movie. It's a hard, hard documentary actually to find on the internet. Uh, but uh, Rob Nilsson was a judge on uh, the Odessa Film Festival in uh, 2013 or 2014 or something. You mean the juice? Um, he, he, he gave the juice away? Well, that's, I, I heard only the best about the dukes. Dukes is the, the festival. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, maybe my uh, calm is uh, compromised, but um, uh, I wanted to support uh, uh, Zarya, what he said entirely, and um, say that he had some very relevant things to say. And uh, there there has been a genocide in Ukraine, and it, it, it occurring in the 1930s, uh, prior to the World War II, actually, and part of the the famine and the, you know, the famine plan of the Nazis and all that. And um, it's a very complex space because we're re-experiencing that space today. It's like 80 years later. And I'm, I'm actively supporting a, a Latvian a survivor of the Second World War spoke of uh, uh, the Latvian prisoners or uh, people were given back to the Russians to go back to the gulags from Sweden. It's I'm, I'm not a confirmed uh, story, but uh, there are many strange things happening in these spaces and very difficult things, and uh, but very real things. Uh, Leon Trotsky was killed 
in 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 Mexico City and then uh, so on. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Los. Um, uh, Adrian, do, do you have a question for Charlie or something to to say? Otherwise. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the, not necessarily a question for Charlie. I think his uh, explanation was very, very clear and um, it tells quite a lot about what's going on. I actually wanted to jump in when you asked the question with, um, I don't know if it's relevant, but with an, uh, some sort of anecdote about Ukraine uh, that I think uh, is relevant. And it ties in with something that we spoke with Dr. Tom about um We spoke uh, at length uh, a few year, uh, a few days ago about this cycle of abuse and how um, we were trying to get to the bottom of this if uh, an abusive nature that can be applied to an entire country like Russia is nurture or nature and obviously you know it's a combination of the both of both and my anecdote about Ukraine is that I know um, I knew a brother and sister uh, in Ukraine um, who uh, had a very abusive alcoholic father and, um, you know, beat them like nonstop when they were kids. And, uh, you know, in the middle of winter, would just throw them out of the house when he would get drunk and so on. And the brother, um, the brother became um, very much like the father um, Uh, he was kind of a lost soul. He uh, got involved in criminal activity. He and um, like all the bad traits you can imagine. And um, he's not uh, not in this world anymore. He died. But the sister, on the other hand, is genuinely one of the kindest, uh, good-hearted, uh, helpful human beings. The kind of person that. I'm not exaggerating, never thinks a, raw, a bad thought about someone uh, or um, never, um, you know, uh, always wants to help, um, always uh, puts others before herself and sometimes helps others even when it hurts her. Um, and um, two people raised in the same family, um one year, two years difference in age, um, but very, very different outcomes. And um, Charlie's historical context is very correct and um, social context. But I mean, to me, as a person who likes to look more at personal stories, um, it's an example of, uh, you know, these two nations, because I think they're more and more as we see what's happening in Ukraine, They might have uh, common origins, but they're very different nations in mentality. And uh, they were both conquered by the Mongols. They were both um, in uh, um, had a very complicated history. Yet one of them seems to have made a choice towards uh, um, towards the West, let's call it, to a more free future. Uh, has made this choice of having an open society and a flawed but still democratic society, while uh, Russia has made this other choice. Because in this discussion with Dr. Tom, we were, uh, uh, some people were trying to, uh, I mean, they weren't a bad intention, but they were trying to attribute um, the problem coming from the top, that uh, succession of abusive leaders and abusive regimes just created the culture of uh, captured people in Russia. And yeah, that's 
true, it has a definite contribution. But uh, I would posit that it also is uh, the willingness of uh, people to go for it, to have this um, uh, openness to submit. I mean, uh, let me give you a, because I, I don't want to ramble and I want to finish. Uh, let me give you this small example of my country of Romania. Like, we are not a very revolutionary people. We lost a lot of wars, even though our history books uh, try to jump over that. Um, and uh, we were not of a protesting nature. And we also had, during communist times, uh, TV that was propaganda, propaganda leaflets. Uh, Ceausescu made a huge personality cult about himself in the 80s with marches on the stadiums and, you know, red flags and 